continuing this morning in our study of the book of Romans. I can't tell you how many times I've read this book. I can't tell you how many times I've studied through this book. Uh, it is most amazing to me that the more you get into it, the more you dig into it, the more there is to find. There's all these little nugget, golden nuggets that are hidden away and these precious jewels. And I just want to encourage all of you to be uh, people of the Bible, people of the book. Uh, I mean, there's so much to learn and know that none of us ever will come close to knowing and learning all of it for all of eternity, much less just this time we have here in this world. As we were saying last week, the particular passages that we're reading right now are somewhat controversial in the church today, and we would be in the minority in our understanding of things. That has not always been true. Uh, that uh, at the time of the Protestant Reformation, virtually everyone would have believed what you and I uh, believe when it comes to the matters of salvation. And ultimately it comes down to this, and it's the, it's the fact, not just the idea, uh, but it's the fact that Scripture clearly teaches a lot of things. And one of those is that God saves people, people don't save themselves. God does it. As a matter of fact, his, his finger is absolutely every aspect of salvation. And if it were not there, then no one would be saved. If we were left to our own strength, to our own abilities, to our own advices, devices, Christ would have come and lived in the world and died on the cross and resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven for absolutely no one. We have to remember the things that Paul has been teaching through this book. And one of those is this, is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That every person is a sinner. Every person has ever breathed air is a sinner. We haven't given the glory to God that he, he's deserving of. In essence, we put ourselves before other people and certainly before God himself. It's true for every person that has ever breathed air. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of God's glory. We also know that the wages of sin is death. That death fell upon people because we've all sinned. That if Adam and Eve had not sinned as our father, first father and mother, and sin had not entered the picture, then, there, then death would not have entered the picture. But because sin entered the picture, then death actually entered the picture as well. We're going to be looking this morning principally at uh, verses 28 and 29 in Romans chapter 8. Uh, very often this is referred to as the golden chain of salvation or the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. Particular elements uh, that are listed here that have to do with God's redemptive work to save us from our sins and to claim us and bring us to himself. I do want to say this, that uh, if you look at the rest of Scripture, remember Scripture, interpret Scripture. If you look at uh, the, the rest of Scripture, you're going to find that there are particular elements in this golden chain of salvation or links in this golden chain that are not listed here specifically. So I'll be bringing your attention to those as we go through here.
I'm going to jump back to verse 26 in chapter 8 and read through 30. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps uh, our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. We talked last week pretty extensively uh, about the idea that there really are two camps within the church uh, in their understanding of this particular uh, uh, passage. What it comes to for me is this, is a particular question, and that is, is God in the business of saving people? Or are people in the business of saving themselves? At the time of the Reformation, the answer to that question would have been almost unanimously that God saves people, people do not save themselves. But we live in a church today that has drifted very much in the opposite direction, where most people believe ultimately your salvation rests upon yourself. Not only to get you saved, but to keep you saved. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Now... We've all lived in life long enough to know that sometimes we undergo great strugglings and strife, right? I don't think anybody here in, the, in this room would, would have the idea that life is always pleasant. There, there are bad things that happen even to the very best people in life. But what it comes down to, guys and gals, is this. Is God truly almighty and all-powerful? And as a consequence, as he predetermined all things that come to pass, all things that come to pass, including salvation, what the Reformed group would say is yes, Arminians, on the other hand, would have to say, at least in some ways, no. That God may be sovereign in absolutely everything else, but when it comes to matters of salvation, he ultimately leaves it ultimately up to each individual person. Now, let me say, God is either foreordained everything that comes to pass. He's a sovereign king and Lord over all that he's created, or he's not. If you believe that he is sovereign over all things, it should not 
bother you one bit that that includes everything, including salvation. I've heard people make comments like this. Well, God is sovereign. Yes, he is sovereign, but when it comes to salvation, he's left it up to people, and he demonstrates his sovereignty in allowing us to choose one way or the other of our own free will. And as we talked a lot about last week, the phrase free will never falls one time. You can't find it in Scripture anywhere. The Bible never describes mankind as having a free will. It describes us over and over again as being in the bondage of sin. Not the other way around. The Bible describes us, if left by God, of being absolutely and completely unable to choose salvation on our own. Salvation requires the enabling grace of God to bring us to the place that we must be at in order that we would be saved. When you understand that, God is the one who has saved me and God is the one who keeps me saved. Not me, Him. It brings you to a place of comfort that you will never know otherwise. It brings you to understand something like he is working out, he's causing all things to work together for my good, even the things that seem to be bad from my perspective. That he's using even the suffering that I go through as a benefit to me, ultimately. It may not seem like it's a benefit while I'm going through it. But on the other side of it, I will have learned things that I would not have learned otherwise. Some of us, I think, are just satisfied staying where we're at spiritually. We don't want to be stretched. We don't want to be pulled. We don't want to be tugged. We just are really in our comfort zone, and that's where we want to be. Don't tell me anything that's going to pierce into that. I don't want to hear it. God is not satisfied with any of his children staying there. He wants us to grow. He wants us to understand more and more our utter and absolute dependence upon him for all things. Could a sinner learn those lessons without suffering? You think that's even possible? We have a God who loves us, and we always have to remember that, and he's demonstrated that love in a way that we can't deny it. And that he gave his only son to suffer, that we would have life. Remember, he's the God who calls us to suffering, but he's a God who suffered himself far more than we ever will, any of us. But there's some things that we learn through suffering that we would otherwise not learn, things that we really need to know. When was the last time you praised God because he brought you into suffering? When was the last time that it even crossed your mind that you might want to do that? 
And we live in this world today where the general mindset is this, is if you're suffering any way, shape, or form, whether it be financially, emotionally, relationally, any other way, then what you're supposed to do, the responsible thing for you to do, is to do whatever you have to do to completely alleviate that as quickly as you possibly can. See, the modern-day mindset doesn't even consider the, the fact that there is actually some benefit that comes out of things like suffering. You're not supposed to suffer according to the mindset of so many. Suffering is always a bad thing. But it's not a bad thing for Christians. It's something that we need. It's one of the few things that will help us grow in our absolute understanding of our absolute and utter dependence upon God for everything. I think I alluded to this last week. Do you really want to be in a position where your salvation is determined upon your ability to hold on to God? Your strength to hold on to him. Doesn't it give you a whole lot more comfort knowing that he has saved you and he is doing everything necessary to keep you saved? And because all that is true, that you will in fact be saved, there's no way that you cannot possibly be saved. It comes down to this. It's not, your relationship with God is not dependent upon your ability to hold on to him. It's totally and absolutely dependent upon his ability to hold on to you. Which one do you think really is most reliable? Which one is more dependable? God holding on or you holding on? Once you, get your, once you have salvation, guys, you cannot lose it. When you are truly saved by Christ Jesus, you cannot lose your salvation. That's God's promise to you. You don't have to live a life of fear, going through, through life afraid that God's going to be done with you and let you go at some point. He will not do that. Does it mean that you won't do some bad things along the way? As a matter of fact, I can promise you, you will do some bad things along the way. Because you still have that sinful nature that lives and breathes in you. And it's true for all of us. One of the things Paul's been arguing. Just remember Romans chapter 7. That there's sin within all of us. And very often we find ourselves doing the things we don't want to do. Doing the things, in fact, the things that we hate sometimes. But it's not us doing them. It's the sin that's within us that does that. Do we know that all things that take place in this world take place for our good? Do we know that? Do we live that? Do we understand that? If we do, let me tell you something. It will liberate us in a way that probably not many other things will. Sadly, I really believe this. There are a lot of church people today who believe that suffering is something that should just disappear from the whole picture. God uses suffering for our benefit. And suffering has to do with bringing all things together for our good. Did Christ suffer? 
You bet you. The argument could very easily be made that he suffered far more than any other person ever has, ever. In ways no other person has, ever. Christ knows suffering in a way that you and I never will know suffering. And the precious thing about it is he did it for us. And demonstrate how much he cares about Avis Craig. And how much he loves Joan Watson. Those who are called. Now this is where we start getting into difficult This is what we call effectual calling or efficacious calling. That out of the whole of mankind, God particularly and specifically calls out particular people to salvation. Now, when I say that, some of you are grimacing There's part of me that's grimacing. But just remember this, that the word of God is not always easy on our sinful nature. In other words, there's sometimes when we read it, when the things we read actually grate on us in some ways. I mean, what it comes down to, guys, is this, as we're going through here, is this, is God predetermined who will be saved and at the same time passes over those who will not be. It all comes down to the matter of the sovereignty of God. Is God absolutely sovereign in absolutely everything? Or is God absolutely sovereign in absolutely everything, but with the one exception, and that exception is salvation. Now, if we keep things in context, we need to remember this. Paul has been arguing that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So who deserves to be saved? And the answer is nobody. Not one single person does. We all deserve to be passed over. And what about this? If God didn't do this, if he wasn't actively the one who calls particular people unto salvation... There's a potential that not one single person would have ever been saved. As a matter of fact, if we're consistent with what Paul has been teaching all the way through the book of Romans, if God did not do this, not one single person would have been saved. Nobody. Everyone would have remained in their trespasses. Everyone would have been condemned to the hell. Everybody. And that is what we're all worthy of. Every one of us. Because we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But what we're saying here is this. Is that in order to come to Christ, it requires something. And that is what's called efficacious calling. Calling that's issued from God to particular people. Now let me just say, there is an, there's an ex, what's called the external call. 
And that call is, is the preaching, the teaching, the, 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 the you know, expo, uh, exposition of Scripture and, uh, and, and all that sort of thing. That there's a, there's a universal call that goes out to everybody. Everybody that will listen to the gospel can hear it. Everyone that's exposed to it. But you and I know something. One of those is this. Is, is as hard as the church may be attempting to fulfill the great commission in our day, we know this. We know that there are people today on this earth that will die who never in their lifetime once will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ or read it from the Bible. And we understand this as we look through by the history of mankind. We're not talking about a small percentage of mankind. We're talking about a humongous percentage of mankind. And, and overabundance of mankind would fall into that category. And just remember that Scripture builds on Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. So how do we understand this? We understand it in light of what Paul has already taught. And that is we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of God's glory. And will we be judged based upon what we know? Those people who've never heard of Jesus are going to be based upon what God has revealed about himself in nature. Romans chapter 1, natural revelation. Where Paul argues this, is no one can claim, I did not know there was a God. That there's sufficient evidence and creation around us that screams that there is a God who exists. There's a God who created all of this. And if you don't believe that, then you have to believe that at some time or another that all that exists today just came into being without any help from anything uh, out, of any, uh, out, of any, out of nothing. Those people who hear the gospel in their lifetime and they choose to reject it, it puts them in a, in a, in a position of more accountability, not less. They will be judged more harshly because they have absolutely denied not only the God that exists, but they have denied his son. But what effectual calling is this? Is the Holy Spirit beginning to move within someone? Let me tell you, without effectual calling, sometimes we call it regeneration. Or regeneration is right on the heels of it. If we're all dead in our trespasses, if we're going to have an ear for God, any heart for God, there's only one way that can happen. And that is because so for God to put that in us. There's this outward call that goes out, but there's also something that's absolutely necessary, and that's the inward call. If you're a believer today, unless you happen to be one of those rare people who's been a believer ever since you were born, and there are a few people filled for all that category, most people are not then you know that there was a time when before you had no interest in God at all. You had no interest in Jesus Christ. You weren't concerned about your sin. But the time came when you began to be concerned about those kinds of things. That was God beginning to work in you. God beginning to draw you to himself. 
And what I would say to you is when God calls, when God truly calls, everybody listens. Everybody, without exception. But if that calling never comes, you will never come to faith in Christ. You see, it has to come from God. You don't have the ability of yourself. He has to be the one behind it doing work in us that we are fully incapable of doing ourselves. One of the reasons I believe so much in this stuff is it's me. I saw this. There was a time, you know, I grew up in the church as a kid and whatever, but for a long time I wanted nothing to do with any of it, and I completely rejected it by the time I became an adult and saw you guys were a bunch of quacks and kooks. but something began to change in me. This Keith who had no interest in God, this Keith who had no interest in Jesus Christ, began to wonder and to ponder, was that me just all of a sudden sudden wakening myself up? I'd been in this spiritual slumber for years and years and years and years, now just by my own ability, now I'm just, I'm nudging myself and I'm waking myself up spiritually. No, that was God beginning to work in me. He initiated it. Not me. And if he had not done that, I would still be out there in the world completely lost. Is God sovereign in salvation? He never promises to save everybody. Could he? If he determined he wanted to, could he save everybody? Yeah, he could. But he never promises that he will do that, ever. As a matter of fact, there's a sense in which he says he won't. Maybe not directly, but indirectly. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Notice there, the purpose of it is to return us to being made in God's image perfectly. To undo what happened when we fell into sin through Adam and Eve. Foreknowledge simply means to know beforehand. It means a lot more than that. There's two ways. This is where we start to part company with some of our Christian brothers and sisters. To foreknow means simply to know beforehand what's going to take place. So the question becomes this. How is it that God knows? Foreknows. Is it because he's not bound by time in any way, shape, or form, so he sees past, present, and future all at the same time. So he just knows because he sees what's going to happen in the future. He sees who will actually respond when he calls them. 
And therefore, he, go, he did that. He, what he did at the time when it came to this, this, this plan of salvation, that what he did was he looked into the future to see who was going to believe. Could he do that? Yeah, he could do that. And then what he did was he backtracked and he wrote those people's names down in the Lamb's Book of Life. And in the Scripture says that our names have been in the Lamb's Book of Life forever. Since the, since the beginning of time. Now that makes sense to us humanly. But you need to understand that foreknowledge means far more than that when it comes to God. Well, let me ask you something. Can you foreknow anything? Really? Can you know matter of factly that anything is ever going to absolutely happen? Anything. fact of the matter is we can't. There's always things, always circumstances that can come into every single picture and cause the outcome to be very differently than what we thought it was going to be. You and I don't know anything with that sense of absoluteness. God, on the other hand, knows everything absolutely. In other words, there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing at all that can overturn the apple cart of God's plan. Period. He knows absolutely, sovereignly, everything that's going to happen. Now the question is this, how does he know that? Is it because he can just look ahead in the future and he's going to see how things go? Or... And see, that would be the Arminian view. The majority view of most Christians in the church today. What I would say to you is this. That's not what is being pictured here at all. Is that God knows, not because he saw what would happen, but because he predetermined what would happen. This is what we call the decrees of God. God has declared whatsoever comes to pass, period. Now, some people would say, well, that applies to every sovereign and everything except salvation. And salvation, he has chosen to leave it completely, absolutely up to the individual person. That sounds good, doesn't it? But let me tell you, if he leaves it completely, absolutely up to the individual person, not one single person would ever choose Christ. Nobody. Do you understand that if you believe that, there's a possibility that you'd have to have, be open to the idea that Christ could have come into the world and not saved one single person? Nobody. Period. Has God foreordained all things that come to pass, including salvation? And I would say to you, yes. That was absolutely the only way for him to ensure what the outcome would be. So there were no apple carts 
along the way that could overturn his declared purpose and will as sovereign Lord and King and God of everything. In other words, Kathy, he was not willing to leave you to chance. He was not willing to leave you to your own abilities and your own devices because if he had done that, you would not be where you are. You would have been lost forever. God is a mighty God, and what he says, has said, will happen, will happen. Period. There's a sense in which God knowing you is, it can be equated to loving you. How did God create the heavens and the earth? I spoke the words. There's a sense in which God brought creation into existence through knowing it. He knew it into being. And before he knew it into being, it wasn't. Jeremiah. Before you were born, I knew you. The Bible screams over and over again from the very beginning to the very end of it that God uses, he chooses to use particular people in ways he doesn't choose to use other people. Most people seem to be okay with that. Let me tell you, you can't get away from the Bible without coming to that conclusion. In other words, God chose Abraham. Abraham did not choose him. Abraham was an unbelieving pagan. God called Abraham to himself. Same thing is true with King David. If you know anything about King David, was King David a particularly moral person? This is one of the most amazing things about this whole thing about salvation is God very often calls the people we and I wouldn't even think he would have anything to do with. The dirtiest, rottenest scoundrels. Did God use Israel? In a salvific way? Yes. It was through Israel that the Savior came into the world, right? God called them what? What does the Bible say? His what? His chosen people. You just see it over and over again, this theme of God choosing particular people or groups of people to accomplish particular things, which we all seem to be okay with. 
It's just when it comes down to the individual that we get our feathers ruffled. But there really is no difference. There's no difference at all. I think fundamentally we want a God that we can manipulate. Not a God who's supreme. Not a God who's sovereign. Not a God whose word is the word and the final word, the only word. The sin within us encourages us to accept the idea of a God that we can manipulate. That we can get him to do what we want him to do. My friends, that is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible says, and it is. The God of the Bible does, and it is done. Without exception. As we said before, as far as we go, we are described before salvation of being in the bondage of sin. Prisoners to sin. We can't break that. We have not the ability to overcome it. If it's going to be done, God's got to do it. People sometimes, when we're talking about these things, talk about the fairness of God. Well, that's just not fair. It's not fair. But let me just remind you, if we won't fair, no one gets saved. Nobody. God has never promised he's going to save everybody. As a matter of fact, that we have every good reason from Scripture. He's not. It's never been his intention to. Could he if he wanted to? Yes. But notice here that he foreknew these and he predestined them, and predestined means to determine beforehand. It means exactly what it sounds like, to, to determine the destiny beforehand. To determine Flora Barker's destiny beforehand. Not, Flora didn't determine that destiny, God did. Well, some of you may be sitting here this morning saying, well, why would God do something like we're talking about here? Just whatever. There's all kinds of reasons you might be able to come up with. One of them is this is is the only way that you and I would know that he, in fact, is God. That he's the one who's in charge. And that everything that's taking place is taking place according to his perfect will and purpose. And just remember this, that God is so far above us that every idea that we have about him ends in mystery. Everything does. In other words, we can always learn more about God, but let me tell you something, you will never in eternity ever come close to understanding God. 
The more you learn, the more you'll understand there is to learn. The depth of God himself is unfathomable to us. So what I'm telling you, and this is what Scripture says, it's not, let me tell you, if you come to another conclusion, what you're doing is you're letting the human nature determine for you what you think God ought to be doing. And this is one of the reasons why Scripture is so important to us. And that is God speaking. Scripture is God speaking. Period. We have to take what it says. This is God saying it. It may sometimes not make a whole lot of sense to us. Sometimes it may even agitate us or rub on us wrongly. But you know why that's true? It's because we really don't understand. That simple nature in us warps things, and it makes us think, make crazy things. Like, well, God would be unjust if he did something like that, or, 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 or my God wouldn't do something like that, because that sounds to me like it's kind of wicked and evil, and my God's not like that. But see, very often we put a lot more credence in the will of man than we do the will of God. There's a sense in which we think our own decisions ought to supersede everything and anything that God does or wants to do. But that's just not the God of the Bible. It's not God. Well, one of the concerns here is this, is if this is how God saves people, then it's going to give some people grounds for thinking, I'm better than other people. God saved me, and it saves Joe or Sally. That must mean there's something really special about me that sets me apart from them. God saw something in me that was good and desirable, and so he saved me. I hope you don't have those kinds of thoughts. When you look at yourself, the most amazing thing to you ought to be this, because you know yourself like nobody else does, that God actually did it, that God saved me. That should be one of the greatest mysteries for every one of us in this room. Why me? Why me? You know, grace is such a very important word in the church today, and very often you don't hear it spoken that much. But this is what we're talking about. We're talking about grace, about God forgiving the unforgivable. Grace is a free gift. In other words, salvation is a free gift that God gives to us. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't have it coming to us. He does it. That's why it is a free gift. And when you understand that, you can't be puffed up and proud. You can't go around thinking, nanny, 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 God saved me and he didn't save you. That must mean that I'm better than you are. What it ought to do is drive home to you what a dirty, rotten scoundrel you are and how great and abundant the grace of God is that he would save the dirty, rotten you because you know yourself. You know those nasty thoughts that go through your mind. You know those words that you want to speak. You know the things that you do. 
even now. If you see yourself as this wonderfully lovable, perfect person, then you are not where you need to be salvifically. The most amazing thing for you ought to be this, not that God did what he did as far as salvation goes, but that God saved me. And my, that thought, the knowledge of that will transform your life like nothing else will. Because you have tasted grace and you know grace, you would be the first one to show grace to other people. And grace is giving undeserved, unmerited favor. In other words, showing favor, showing love, showing kindness to the people who perhaps in your eyes deserve it least of all. You understand? That is what ought to, ought to motivate evangelism, not guilt. Guilt is what, what, what motivates most evangelism that takes place. God told me I'm supposed to do it, so i got to do it. Whether I want to do it, I'm good at it, or whatever, I've got to do that evangelism, and if I don't, I feel downright guilty about it. No. Grace is what motivates real evangelism. Tasting it for yourself, and wanting it passionately for other people. Knowing that if God saved me, He and only He can save anybody. And that will change your whole outlook on life if you see everything through the filter of grace. It will transform you. It will transform the people around you. It will transform the church. It will transform the culture. Anyway, We didn't get all that far. We'll pick up here next week.